Right, and time is a critical issue because when anthropologists want to present ethnography, time is always limited. So I will seriously cut my paper, but I will also try to read some parts of it because the text and the way it is presented is a serious issue for uh, those who follow my skill, my trade. And actually, representation, ethnographic representation and the different styles is probably something that unites literature and anthropology. Um, so, let's go straight to the point. Uh, the, the relevatory incident that attracted my attention to the ethics of humanitarian action in austerity ridden Greece was an ordinary conversation, and you see it on the screen. It evolved in a relaxed and friendly atmosphere, despite the eventual disagreement. The protagonists were people I knew well for some years, Eva and Mary. Eva and Mary. Uh, they had invited me to participate in a grassroots solidarity initiative while loading a car with food provisions to be distributed to families striking by austerity. Eva's husband, Nikos, approached us with some critical remarks, as you see unraveling in the coming uh, graphic version of it. His argument drew attention to how a Marxist-inspired critique of philanthropy may very well apply to humanitarianism more generally but also to crisis-related solidarity initiatives. Intrigued by Nico's comments, I decided to investigate the relationship of solidarity and philanthropy in the narratives of several other people in Patras, which was the site of my fieldwork. The resulting conversations led to the ethnography I will try to present, or fragments of which I will try to present today, and also uh, invited many related questions. Is solidarity another more timely and politically nuanced version of philanthropy? Or does it involve the dynamic that can be seen by the solidarity participants themselves as empowering? Is such empowerment self-exonerating and justification for perpetuating a particular <coughs> status quo? So as you see already, I immortalized the original discussion that prompted me into this investigation in the form of graphic ethnography, which is another way to communicate ethnographic data. This visually compelling form of representation is very suitable for situating dilemmas in culturally meaningful contexts. As such, graphic ethnography represents an attempt towards developing a graphic anthropology. The use of sketches and drawings in the production of anthropological work can challenge the top-down authorial imposition of authenticity as a representative of a prototypical form and may also enhance reflexivity. The resulting view of incompleteness depicts more accurately the fluidity of social reality. Most discussions in daily life and academia too are inconclusive. And there is a certain benefit that they remain shown. So, as you see right in what you can see behind me, uh, Nikos is introducing a Marxist critique of philanthropy. He has followed, of course, many transformations of the Greek left, from the Polytechnic uprising all the way to the current victory of Syriza. Uh, and his analytical thinking, he acknowledges, was formed in his youth by the Greek Communist Party. So there is a connection there. I trace it all the way back to Karl Marx, to Marx and Engels and the Manifesto, uh, where they present 
philanthropists and humanitarians in a critical way. Philanthropists, humanitarians, says Marx, organizers of charity represent a conservative bourgeois type of socialism. Later on, as I was discussing with Nikos, he clarified that he had not read the official uh, position of the, of the Greek Communist Party regarding voluntarism, which was very similar to his views. Neither he had read Zizek's critical position towards charity, which again was very similar to his views. Uh, right, well, Zizek has exposed charity as a misleading and exonerating trick in today's cultural capitalism. And Zizek relies on Oscar Wilde to argue that charity is not a solution, but an aggravation of a difficulty. Both Zizek and Nikos argue that they are not, strictly speaking, against charitable activity, but they feel obliged to problematize the misleading ideological parameters of a political humanitarianism. So there was a general sense of convergence of view. I'll put it in Greek, asymptosi apopsion, as some of my respondents, some of my interlocutors said. Asymptosi apopsion with regard to ideological positions. Another interlocutor, Yosif, who's an anarchist and a mathematician, uh, re related to uh, Friedrich Nietzsche and Oscar Wilde together. The two authors, who most probably never met each other, comment on how charity breeds resentment among beneficiaries. Wilde has provo provocatively argued that the poor are quite right to be ungrateful for charity. Why should they be grateful for the grants that fall from the rich man's table? While Nietzsche reminds us that if a little charity is not forgotten, it turns into a gnawing worm. Here, probably metaphorically, since we're very good with drawing metaphors, we can see this asymmetrical uh, the relationship between giver and beneficiary as representing the relationship between EU and Greece. As such, EU assistance to Greece can be compared to, use Oscar Wilde once more, a ridiculously inadequate mode of partial restitution, an aggravation of the difficulty, and as such, it offends. But I return to the main argument I consider in this article, namely, whether solidarity initiatives that provide humanitarian help have a socially empowering role, or to what extent the humanitarian phase of solidarity contributes to the perpetuation of social inequality. So in crisis-afflicted Greece, we have seen many grassroots solidarity initiatives, many spontaneous solidarity initiatives. Many peop people unite to offer, quite often spontaneously, help to those they feel they are in need. Also in the same context, uh, we see uh, various interesting terms, solidarity, anilegi, philanthropy, philanthropia, and humanitarianism, we don't have an exact relevant in Greek, but the term is used primarily in an adjective form, anthropistikos. The overlap between these terms provided very interesting situations. Uh, actual situated actors, local people, everyday people, uh, draw attention very often to the conceptual imprecision reproduced by the coexistence of all those terms. Some of my interlocutors recognize this imprecision and deliberately bring the two concepts closer together. 
to underline the critical points or highlight the view that in some respects, solidarity initiatives seem suspiciously similar to humanitarianism and philanthropic activity. So we have an ambiguity here. Uh, and this ambiguity is reproduced by real people out there in everyday life, my interlocutors in Patras, who in a sense operate as amateur critical theorists, making the best of this ambiguity and drawing different political conclusions. The views of Wilde, Nietzsche, Zizek become interesting once more to the degree that the eco-parallel concerns or disagreements among the protagonists of everyday life. And in anti-mythography, I treat my interlocutors and famous uh, social thinkers uh, or as equals in the narration of the narrative. And this is a deliberate decision which attempts to subvert a little bit the subtle hierarchy of the way academic knowledge is reproduced. Obviously, as a good anthropologist, I had to have a section in the paper about reflexivity. Who am I? Why I got involved in all that? I started volunteering in some of those uh, spontaneous uh, humanitarian initiatives, and I started providing people uh, with food, uh, offering food hand to hand, bag to hand, plastic bag to hand. And that induced an emotional altruistic effect, I thought. Uh, something that I felt and I shared with other volunteers and aid professionals. Was I becoming a better person, I asked myself? Or I merely deluded myself in believing so? Is this, after all, the secret fascination of bourgeois philanthropy? That is, to mislead the benefactor into feeling unique and important, to exonerate one's guilt for tolerating inequality. And maybe you can see another graphic commentary that uh, solves some of my dilemmas. Right. Uh, I don't have the time to give you lots of information about context, but I feel in this audience you don't need much information to understand uh, uh, the social problems faced by many people in Greece. Uh, only to mention that um, I worked with several solidarity initiatives. One of them, which, to which I refer with the pseudonym Arogos, was uh, Edomi, a local structure, where lots of women, uh, uh, middle-class women, but uh, almost all of them supporters of Syriza, uh, they were meeting to provide help to people in the neighborhood who were in need. So I'll go straight into giving you very selectively, because I don't have time to unravel the full detail of their views, some uh, uh, a sense of the voices, how they talk about all that, how they talk about the emerging dilemmas. Georgia is a founding member of this initiative, the initiative of Arodos, who's now a series of supported but followed the Communist Party in her youth. She attempted to interpret the, commun the Communist Party's position with respect to, to voluntarism and humanitarians, humanitarianism and differentiate herself from it. She said, the Communist Party believes that all responsibility lies with the state. If we provide for the poor, the state encompasses itself, volevity. According to this position, the hungry should become even more hungry so that they will stand up against inequality and unite in revolution. At this point, Uriah Post, 
because she realized that a part of her was identifying with the promise of revolution. But another part of her, she admitted, was not happy with this position anymore. I once applauded this bold political message, she said, in a reflexive manner. But now I believe that it is an ex excuse for inaction. She referred to some of your former socialist fellows, Sinagonistes, who are settled with Volevode with the old Marxist view and do absolutely nothing. This is, time, this is times of crisis, Yorigia concluded. You cannot stay passive and do nothing. As a mother of two, Yorigia feels that she's in shortage of time, but she always finds the time she's stressed to participate in a simetehi. And this is an important concept. A similar viewpoint to Yorigia was shared by another participant of Arodos and Syriza supporter, Eleni, who's a medical doctor and involved in the activities of the social health cleaning and social pharmacy. Someone has to take the first steps, he said. Somebody has to take the start, to make the start, and inspire the others. Her experience providing for impoverished citizens in Patras has taught her that volunteering was a mutually motivating effect. Each volunteer inspires yet another volunteer. You see people joining whom you would not expect to join. In this gradual manner, solidarity initiatives reanimate people's social consciousness. Ordinary people whose desire to give was previously latent, said Delaney, come and join various crisis solidarity events. And she pointed at three stereotypically middle-class ladies, uh, let's say probably ex-PASOC supporters, quite liberal before, who are now regularly volunteer to cook meals for the poor, and through action, they have changed the way they approach politics. They have been reformed. So the emphasis on the empowering dimension of solidarity emanated by the positions of my interlocutor, Sata Rodos, resonated with the emancipatory euphoria of the participatory experience. The practice of cooking and distributing warm food to those afflicted by the crisis was seen by the Arodos participants as indirect resistance to the crisis itself, an opportunity to escape temporarily from the paralyzing, disempowering effect of austerity. The sharing of the time and resources was in this respect a means to communicate a social message, as they said, in a period of unprecedented and social measures taken by the governments before Syria. The coming together is inevitable of like-minded solidarians in regular cooperation was described by the women of Arodos as equally important to the humanitarian dimension of their activity. So it was not only that the offer helped. For them, what was more important was being together and expanding the, socialist the social consequence. Uh, I also collected conservative views, let's say, by classical, classic liberal subjects. For example, many people in the town who regularly contribute to Red Cross initiatives. Many of them, I don't have time to provide you with the views, many of them stress the transformative dimension of humanitarian uh, involvement, how this has changed themselves as individuals. Here, the emphasis was not on social consciousness, on working together, but mostly on how the self is changing through giving. Um, right. I should probably give you just the voice of one of them, Mrs. Irini. She told me, theoreticians and intellectuals like you consider us fools. 
She's an elderly Red Cross volunteer who has been a Samaritan for many, many, many years. During all that time, she has heard all sorts of criticism, including what she described the communist argument. The latter, she explained, attempts to portray volunteers as being exploited by the system as well by the very philanthropic institutions to which they contribute that time and monetary donations. During the latest conversation, Mrs. Irini confronted this criticism with stoic defiance. They laugh at all voluntary projects, not only the initiatives of the Red Cross. Take any example you like, cleaning the beach from the rubbish, distributing food to the poor, caring for migrants, or organizing blood donations. And Mrs. Irini looked at me in a penetrating manner, suspecting that I secretly sympathize with a Marxist critique. What do they want to hide with such arguments, she asked rhetorically. I'll tell you what, their indifference to the common interest or simply one's laziness. Tell me, Dimitri, what anthropologists do for those in need, she said, and looked at me with her petrifying gray-blue eyes, and she had this kind of helmet-like old-fashioned uh, hairstyle which conveys a little bit of authority. This is how it used to be my school teacher when I was very little, so I was petrified. Yeah, well, and smelling very nice. Uh, yes, right. Uh, I collected many other points of view. I don't have time to give you the ethnography. Some of worlds were on the, from the other side, even more critical, for example, from supporters of the Communist Party. And I don't have time for this. I even tried to portray dialogues between Syriza supporters and supporters of the Communist Party, disagreeing and then finally finding a common ground. All this is very interesting, and these are tricks you can do with ethnography, which is an amazing medium. Uh, there was lots of critique about selflessness and idiotelia, uh, the idealization of the self, the social dimensions, rich neighbors, you know, giving to poor people and believing that they're nice. All this is very interesting, but I have to skip it and go straight to some of my concluding thoughts. I have five minutes, yeah? Right, so uh, the two main conclusions that I treat as parallel, and I give emphasis on the simultaneity. Some of you might say that I didn't want to disappoint anybody, so I had two conclusions, one more series I like, one more uh, Communist Party like, and I was trying to be diplomatic. Uh, but it's not exactly like, like that. I mean, from my point of view, giving emphasis on of the simultaneity of different views in any particular local context is a very good weapon against essentialism. And I have used a similar tactic to deconstruct many other theoretical concepts, like authenticity, for example. So, my conclusion, my first conclusion, which presents itself from this ethnography, is participation in solidarity movements in crisis-afflicted Greece contributes to the shaping of a more dynamic social consciousness. This realization provides a strong positive message which deserves to be disseminated more widely. Let's tell everybody about it. Humanitarian solidarity is more valuable in its role as a means of broadening the political awareness of those who participate in it than as it is as a mechanism for providing help to those in need. Although humanitarian aid is undeniably a limited, temporary, and insufficient solution, the act of providing help to those in need engenders the formations of active networks of citizens seeking change. A fellow anthropologist, Rakopoulos, has provided examples of activist volunteers who imagine alternative modes of economic contact and see the actions as building up to a broader change. 
Similar examples of empowerment through solidarity are offered by additional ethnographic accounts, for example, Pakith Cabot, Katerina Rozaku, just to mention some of uh, my fellow anthropologists, who have done studies in different parts of Greece, again with solidarity initiatives. Local networks of citizens who become better acquainted and organized through solidarity initiatives can potentially, but not always, reconstitute themselves as pressure groups or locally embedded political entities. It's a magic thing that happens when people are together and work together for a common purpose. Although I strongly appreciate the empowering dimension of solidarity initiatives outlined above, I feel obliged to offer a second concluding consideration. For my first optimistic conclusion, may encourage a certain degree of what my most critical interlocutors call complacency, efficihasmos. The effectiveness of several solidarity movements in addressing some of the most immediate repercussions of austerity at the local level may contribute in redirecting attention away from systemic inequalities. In this respect, humanitarian agents can be seen as maintaining a secret solidarity with the very powers that ought to fight, as Agamben probably would have said. This is a drawback shared by the humanitarian activity more generally, not just the case I described here. Its unintended consequences include the proclivity to depoliticize and individualize suffering. An over-attentiveness to the suffering subject that can be seen here as a substitute for anthropologists' exotic proclivity to otherize others, as Joel Robbins, another anthropologist, has argued. In a paradoxical manner, humanitarianism efficacy distorts the root of the problems it attempts to redress. Tictin, drawing from the anthropological literature, provides us with several telling examples of that. Humanitarian measures against famine may lead to the depoliticization of famine as a historically embedded experience. Humanitarian aid in response to conflict-related emergencies can naturalize and normalize violence and war, hiding from view the political dimension, as other anthropologists like Pasin and Pandolfi have argued. Humanitarianism in non-Western contexts often obscures the inequality between Western and non-Western humanitarian workers. Similarly, humanitarian hospitality conceals the hierarchy and controlling inclusion of refugees in the social world of host population, as Katerina Rosakwa argues, uh, also um, referring to many uh, anthropologists from uh, previous generations. Rene Hirscher is one of the people uh, quoted and studying in front of me because there is a classic asymmetry in uh, uh, gift-giving and hospitality. But let me return to the point from which I started when I, start, when, I wanted, when I started writing the article. That was the transformational aspect of my participation in food distribution initiatives, which enticed me to engage with the Marxist critique of philanthropy and reassess its relevance for a contemporary context of solidarity activity in crisis-afflicted Greece. Undoubtedly, as I soon realized, the meaning of solidarity as an empowering and politically nuanced notion is subject to change and re-employed strategically to meet new challenges and crisis experiences. But as with most versions of humanitarianism, humanitarian solidarity cannot be completely disconnected from the liabilities of philanthropy, where the latter is conceived as a political vision or a self-exonerating practice. In these respects, the criticism of Marx, Oscar Wilde, Nietzsche, and Zizek are still timely. 
were matched by the critical remarks of my interlocutors in Patras who appeared so interested in debating the ethics of humanitarianism. Humanitarian solidarity looked to some of them like a partial solution, independent of their decision to participate in it or not. The importance of the local arguments I presented lie in the circularity. There is not an end. It's very good that there is not an end. There is not one straightforward rule to be followed in all cases of humanitarian solidarity. The two conclusions I have outlined in an open and deliberately inconclusive manner seem to coexist simultaneously without challenging, without cancelling, they do challenge one another, but without cancelling each other out. Humanitarian solidarity in austerity-ridden Greece can be an empowering experience. Many people out there testify to that. An experience that stimulates the political awareness of those who participate in it. But humanitarian solidarity, when this is conceived as a self-exonerating achievement or a superficial response to the immediacy of suffering, detracts attention from the root of social inequality and depoliticizes the consequences of the crisis. These two parallel and overlapping conclusions can help us depart from an all-or-nothing position with regard to the Marxist critique of philanthropy. It also encourages us to appreciate the complexity, contextual specificity, and social embeddedness of humanitarian solidarity initiatives. My friend Petros, a committed critic of most local humanitarian initiatives, admitted in a subsequent conversation that he would have liked to participate, he would have liked to to feel part of the community in solidarity, but he's haunted by the image of his bourgeois neighbor returning home on his four by four, self-exonerated, he cannot be management on to he said, after having helped so many people. So that's the end. <laughs>